Hello and welcome to the Jane MP podcast. My name is Elizabeth Hyten and I'm joined today by um, Associate Professor Michael Barnett from the Sydney Neuroimaging Analysis Centre at the Brain and Mind. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Michael. Pleasure. Uh, so we're going to talk today about your paper that you've recently published in the JNMP, Automated Brain Volumetrics in Multiple Sclerosis, MS, A Step Closer to Clinical Application. Uh, so to orientate our listeners, I wondered if you could just briefly describe the concept of whole brain volume and brain volume loss, particularly as a predictor of worsening disability in MS. Certainly. So uh, MRI has become increasingly used as a tool both in diagnosis and monitoring of MS over a period of decades, but more so over the last five to ten years. And traditionally, we have used lesion-based metrics as a way of monitoring severity of disease and determining treatment efficacy. But there has long been established a so-called imaging clinical paradox, that is, the number of lesions, the volume of lesions in the brain of patients with MS does not necessarily correlate well with disability. Part of that has been solved by the application not of lesion metrics, but of volumetrics, and in particular, whole brain volume change or atrophy. And this seems to correlate much better with disability outcomes, both motor and cognitive, than do traditional lesion-based metrics. And as you mentioned at the beginning, not only is there a correlation, but the rate of volume loss early in disease, in fact, predicts clinical outcomes as far as 10 years later. And new data suggests that if you combine lesion metrics with brain atrophy measures in early disease is an even stronger predictor. So I think uh, certainly in the clinical trial sphere, brain volumetrics has become a very important outcome. uh, And the aim of our study really is to determine whether there is any feasibility of bringing this uh, measure into clinical practice. So um, you mentioned in the paper the gold standard of Sienna-X as a technique to measure cross-sectional brain volume. How often is that and and other techniques being implemented in clinical practice? Very rarely. So Sienna-X, which is a cross-sectional tool, and Sienna, which is a registration-based longitudinal tool, have been used for many years in uh, large clinical trials, particularly in the MS sphere. Uh, and have been validated at the group level uh, for use uh, in uh, tracking treatment outcomes. However, this has really not come yet to clinical practice for a number of reasons. The first issue really is a technical one. So implementing uh, Sienna-X and Sienna, which are freely available tools, by the way, does require a significant amount of expertise. Uh, And also, uh, it is not just the application of post-processing techniques, which these are, but really the importance lies also in the acquisition of the images, Mm -hmm. uh, and particularly in longitudinal studies, the acquisition of the patient scan on the same scanner with the same protocols and the same parameters. Uh, So because of the technical and logistical hurdles that I've just mentioned, the application of Sienna-X and Sienna have not really made it uh, to clinical practice. Another, of course, perhaps more difficult hurdle to overcome is the biological fluctuations in brain volume. And they can be imparted by hydration status, time of day, 
state of the disease. So if the disease is very inflammatory, the brain can swell, disease-modifying medications, etc. And perhaps this is going to be the biggest hurdle to getting these newer measures into clinical practice. Our paper looks at the first step, and that is, is there a way of overcoming the technical and logistical hurdles? But it does not address those biological factors, which will take further work. I suppose that's looking at the patient on an individual level, as you said, rather than the group level. Correct. Yeah. yeah it's bit, all, these biological fluctuations mm. tend to iron out at the group level. And at the group level, that is in the clinical trial sphere, the acquisition protocols are standardised, uh, the post-processing protocols are standardised, and so you get a somewhat artificial view of the uh, utility of these measures. Uh, and uh, you know, an attempt needs to be made, of course, to bring them to clinical practice because of the utility and the, in terms of their correlation and predictive value. But really, I think that requires some work in order to be able to interpret individual test results. In our paper, we only looked as well at cross-sectional results. Uh, and whilst they can be referenced to a normal uh, values of the population, the next step is going to be looking at longitudinal results and their implementation in clinical practice because longitudinal measures of whole brain volume, that is brain atrophy measures, are more predictive or have a, a more uh, solid foundation in terms of predicting clinical outcomes. So what about the other techniques that you mentioned in the paper? The paper was looking at comparing CNX to neuroquant and NS metrics techniques. How did they compare those techniques? This has been a big change over the last few years. That is the introduction of essentially fully automated measures of brain volume that do not require significant expertise, at least in the post-processing phase. So these are really both push-button techniques that have been uh, really only come to the fore over the last two to three years and are now available as clinical tools uh, in many countries, including with regulatory approval in several countries as measures of brain volume. So these techniques in our paper were compared to the so-called gold standard of CNX, which I said has already been implemented at the group level across multiple clinical trials. And they did compare very favourably from a statistical perspective in terms of both their accuracy and uh, precision. And I think our paper demonstrates that you can, you can at least overcome those technical hurdles and have something that's feasible to implement in clinical practice. Now, NeuroQuant and MS metrics are probably just the first of many of these measures that are to come. Uh, there are other newer measures that include uh, automated measures, for instance, of CSF volume or lateral ventricle volume in the form of uh, an entity known as Neurostream. And all of these measures uh, that are coming out, I am sure, will be easily technically implemented, at least that is what our paper would, would suggest, and with significant accuracy and precision. Unfortunately, it doesn't get to that next step that I mentioned. So the two next steps are, one is, how does this perform longitudinally rather than cross-sectionally? And then the next step, which is perhaps the biggest hurdle, is how do we account for these 
biological fluctuations. So that is going to partly rest with the clinician. So the clinicians are going to have to know that they have to apply their scans on the same scanner, same protocol, same parameters each time. Mm -hmm. There is no point comparing a scanner done at 3 Tesla on one scanner and then a year later doing a scan at 1.5 Tesla on a separate scanner with a separate protocol because the results are not comparable. Mm -hmm. Additionally, it's going to require some input from physicians with regard to the hydration status of the patient. So the brain volume can shift by more than a percent depending on the hydration status of the patient. Uh, has the patient received steroids recently? The brain can shrink after a treatment with steroids. So all of these factors will need to be taken into account and only part of that can be done uh, in the lab after the image is acquired. So there is going to have to be an education of clinicians who are interested in these outcome measures as well as uh, the implementation of the post-processing techniques. Well thank you very much for that, that's um, really, really great. Um, thank you for joining me, that was Associate Professor uh, Michael Barnett from the Sydney Neuroimaging Analysis Centre at the Brain and Mind. Thank you Michael. Pleasure, thanks very much. So I'm now joined by Dr. Minnan, who is the director of the Headache Centre from the New York Langone Medical Centre. Today, Dr. Minnan and I will be discussing the patient choice for the July issue of the JNMP Journal. Um, this is for regards to her paper, Migraine and its Psychiatric Comorbidities. Um, thanks for joining me today, Dr. Minnan. Thank you so much for having me. The paper discusses migraine, which is a common concern for patients and doctors, and its association with a high prevalence of psychiatric comorbidities, which is often overlooked. Why do you and fellow authors believe it is important to study comorbidity between migraine and psychiatric disorders? That's a great question. We thought it was really important to study this because the psychiatric comorbidities are so prevalent in patients who suffer from migraine. We know, as we discussed in the paper, that depression and anxiety are at much higher rates than the general population, as well as some other psychiatric comorbidities. And we also know that if they're untreated, these um, comorbid psychiatric conditions can increase the risk of migraine chronification, meaning patients can have more headache days or migraine days than patients who don't have the psychiatric comorbidities. So, for example, there's episodic migraine and then there's chronic migraine, which is 15 or more headache days a month, eight of which meet migraine criteria. So patients who have migraine and psychiatric comorbidities are at higher risk of migraine chronification, meaning developing chronic migraine. In addition, we know that if the psychiatric comorbidities are untreated, they can lead to increased migraine-related disability, meaning patients can complain of difficulty you know, working, home life, taking care of their families, et cetera, can reduce uh, general quality of life and negatively impact treatment outcomes. We also know that patients with migraine and psychiatric comorbidity have higher healthcare utilization tendencies than patients without, than migraine patients without psychiatric comorbidity, meaning that they go to the doctor more, they have more inpatient hospital stays, more emergency room visits, et cetera. Therefore, we thought it was really important to study the comorbidity, migraine and psychiatric comorbidities, and to really shed light on the prevalence, um, possible mechanisms, and possible treatments for these patients. What sort of psychiatric disorders are associated with migraine? Are there any that are not associated with it? 
So the more common psychiatric comorbidities are anxiety and depression. In fact, anxiety seems to have higher rates than depression. For example, in our paper, we found that 51 to 58% of the studies showed that patients with migraine suffer from anxiety, whereas for depression, it was about 41 to 47% or so. So those are the two more common ones. In addition, we found that post-traumatic stress disorder is uh, quite common. And there have also been studies showing that childhood trauma and uh, abuse during adulthood are also associated with migraine. In terms of psychiatric comorbidities not associated with migraine, it's an interesting question. I think that there's um, really not much literature on some of the other psychiatric comorbidities like schizophrenia. It's really not touched upon in our paper. On the other hand, bipolar disorder uh, is more prevalent. That, so it really depends on, on which psychiatric comorbidity we're talking about. So, for example, in the case of bipolar disorder, as I said, that one's more common. Interestingly, bipolar disorder type 2 as, to, as opposed to type 1 seems to be more common. Um, but it really depends on the psychiatric comorbidity that, that you're talking about. There's also been discussion in the literature about personality disorders, um, there was also debate as to whether personality disorder should be included in the DSM-5, and this was really beyond the scope of our review, but that would be another area that could be touched upon for future study. But we do know, that, as I said, that anxiety and depression are really the most common ones, but there's also really high rates of abuse in this patient population. Your paper often describes evidence to suggest a bi-directional relationship between psychiatric um, disorders and migraine. So what evidence is out there to suggest um, this bi-directional relationship between these psychiatric illnesses and migraine? So there's definitely research being done to try to better understand the relationship. But yes, we know from existing literature that it seems there seems to be a bi-directional relationship between migraine and, and the psychiatric um, illnesses that I've mentioned. Um, we think that it's related to a combination of biological, environmental, and genetic risk factors, which may predispose to both disorders. So, for example, um, what I frequently tell patients is that it's one brain, it's one organ, and so um, it's the same neurotransmitters that could be affecting the migraine as could also be affecting some of the psychiatric disorders. So one example of that would be um, serotonergic dysfunction. Um, so that could predispose to both migraine and psychiatric comorbidities such as depression. Uh, but we do know that there are several systems involved here that really link this relationship. Um, one example would be stress. So, for example, we know that um, patients who have migraine, they have, you know, higher rates of stress, and stress is also implicated in migraine, um, can be a, a risk factor for migraine. And in addition, we always have those patients who develop those headaches on the weekend after working like crazy during the week and getting um, their projects in for their deadline, and they're always saying, well, why am I, you know, developing the headaches now on the weekend after my deadline, and so there's a term for that, the letdown headache. So we know that stress, um, for example, cortisone is implicated um, in migraine and, um, and also in psychiatric comorbidities. Um, we also know, for example, that there are other factors like sleep. So for example, insomnia, um, which is really, so many of our headache patients complain of insomnia. It's such a prevalent complaint. Um, and insomnia um, 
is also affected by people suffering from psychiatric conditions like some forms of depression. There are other um, systems as well, such as inflammation, um, hormonal influences. Um, also, we mentioned in the paper central sensitivity or um, sensitization of the sensory and emotional neural networks. Um, so all of these, we think, are, are really related to the bidirectional relationship between migraine and the psychiatric comorbidities. And does this have implications for treatment? I think so. Um, first, the comorbid psychiatric conditions need to be considered when devising a treatment plan for the patient with migraine. Some of the medications uh, we use to treat migraine could interact with current psychiatric medications if patients are being actively treated with psychiatric uh, medications for their you know, psychiatric comorbidities. Uh, also, some of the medications that we use to treat migraine can affect mood. So, for example, then the vaccine was, was level B evidence per the American Academy of Neurology guidelines. Um, now, there was a recent Cochrane meta-analysis which showed that it may not be the best medication for chronic migraine, but just to use it as an example, it affects serotonin and norepinephrine. So that's a medication that could potentially affect mood and anxiety. Um, propanolol is another medication. It's a blood pressure medication, but it's sometimes used to treat um, panic disorder and so forth. Uh, tricyclic antidepressants are a class of medications that we sometimes use uh, for migraine prevention at high doses. Uh, it is used to um, to treat depression. So these are all things that we have to take into account um, and that some of the medications we use can affect mood, although not always at the doses that we're using to treat migraine. Um, I think that it's interesting also to note that um, some of our migraine treatment trials were conducted in patients without comorbid psychiatric illness. So we do need to bear that in mind because that can limit our understanding of how the psychiatric comorbidities impact the outcomes of migraine treatment, um, meaning that the, so the literature that does exist um, is somewhat limited on, on how to treat migraine with the psychiatric comorbidities, um, and, and that literature is mixed. So some studies have cited that psychiatric comorbidities um, may be the reason that the migraine treatment fails. However, other studies have indicated that patients with comorbid psychiatric diagnoses show similar rates of improvement after treatment when compared to those patients uh, without comorbid psychiatric diagnoses, and that's mentioned in the paper. Um, so as we said in the paper to date, there's really no treatment algorithm for the management of migraine in patients with psychiatric comorbidities, but it's still really important to take into account because as I mentioned, not treating the psychiatric comorbidities, we know that can lead to migraine chronification. On a different note, uh, interestingly, I think that in terms of implications for treatment, several of our behavioral treatments are effective for migraine. So um, we have top evidence-based treatments such as cognitive behavioral therapy, progressive muscle relaxation therapy, biofeedback, which are all evidence-based treatments for migraine. And some of these behavioral treatments um, are not only effective for migraine, but also are treatments for some psychiatric comorbidities. So, for example, the cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, CBT, is a known evidence-based treatment for migraine, but it's also used to treat some anxiety disorders. So, I think that the relationship between migraine and psychiatric comorbidities and the implications for treatment in this regard, there's implications for using both the um, pharmacologic treatments and also the behavioral treatments. 
So hypothetically, if you, if you had a patient come into your clinic who is suffering from migraines um, or a clinic, would you recommend the physicians routinely screened for any psychiatric comorbidity? Yes, I, I do think that physicians should routinely screen for the psychiatric comorbidities um, when patients present with migraine because the psychiatric comorbidities are so prevalent. So for the patients who present to my headache center, I am screening for uh, various psychiatric comorbidities. I'm screening for depression, I'm screening for anxiety and for some uh, sleep conditions. And I ask about these conditions on my patient intake form so that I can review this when the patient uh, presents to see me. So I think that attention should be paid to the psychiatric comorbidities. Um, and as I mentioned before, I think it should be paid because these patients appear to be at higher risk for developing the more refractory and chronic migraine. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, um, Dr. Minnan. That was, that was really helpful. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So that was Dr. Minnan, um, who's the director of the Headache Centre at the New York Langone Medical Centre. All the papers we discuss on the podcast are available for free download on jnmp.bmj.com. On behalf of the JNMP, thank you very much for joining us, and we look forward to tuning in with you all next time. Mm-hmm.